Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. There come moments in every one of our lives when we know it's time to take a step and to move forward. In fact, there come moments when we know it's time to take the next step, that we need to turn from where we are and engage the future. It's that time, for example, for high school seniors. They realize that graduation is coming, and as graduation nears, they're being asked questions. People are talking to them, where are you going to go to college? What will your major be? How do you feel about leaving home? Kids, when you hear that question, don't smile if your parents are nearby, because we're weeping and you may be celebrating. You're thinking about the next step. This is what's next on the agenda. There are others here on this campus who are thinking about the next step. Uh, the seniors in all of the programs, take, for example, the fourth-year School of Medicine students. There's a process through which they go that I only know from a distance. I only know as a layperson. But it seems to me to be a process of a mixture of emotions. It's called match day. The day when they go into a room and are handed an envelope and they open that envelope to find out what the next step is in their lives. Just with the ripping open of an envelope, looking at a letter, and finding out where do I go? What's the next step? It seems to me to be a day of exhilaration and despair. Not much in between. Has to do with the next step. I can remember taking a next step. Remember my parents and my sister taking me to the airport in Guatemala City, Central America, and boarding a plane bound for the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport for the next step called college. I was excited, but I was also frightened and uncertain about the future. In fact, I think in those first days back, if I could have afforded it and I thought it possible, I would have boarded a plane headed south again. I'm not so sure I want to take that next step. There are many who face those kinds of realities. Sometimes they're challenging and difficult. Sometimes they're enjoyable and exciting. The next step. There are some people who are thinking about it relationally. I suspect one of the iconic movie scenes of all times was that scene from a movie made about 25 years ago, I'll guess, called My Cousin Vinny. When the two primary actors, Joe Pesci and Marissa Tomei, are on a porch, they're down in the South, they're both quintessential New Yorkers, he's embroiled in a legal case, he doesn't know what's going on, doesn't know if he's going to make it out of there, and she is wanting to be supportive, but she's also concerned. I thought we were taking the next step in this relationship. Do you remember, some of you saw that movie years ago, when she says, you're doing all of this, and in the meantime, my biological clock is like that, ticking, ticking, ticking. In other words, when is the next step? Some here are asking that question. 
You wonder, we've dated a long time. When is this going to move forward? Well, don't get too discouraged because there are others who have taken even longer. Octavio Guillen and Adriana Martinez. Octavio asked Adriana to marry him when they were 15 years old. Does that seem young to you? 15 years old, they got engaged. But they didn't get married immediately. They were going to have a long engagement. So they didn't get married until they were 82. (laughs) 82. 67 years they were engaged before they finally decided, I think it may be time to take the next step before we take the next step, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Unbelievable. From 1902 to 1969, I believe, was the date when they got married. Next step. Well, we're thinking a lot about next steps here these days because we're taking some next steps at Loma Linda University Church having to do with building program, having to do with vision and mission. We have focused down on that vision, on that mission. You remember we stated it. We stated our purpose, growing disciples very clearly. We're a community that desires to grow as disciples. We want to invite others to join us who themselves want to grow as disciples. And so the question comes, what will it take for you, for me, to take the next step in our discipleship journey? Now, we define discipleship very simply as a lifelong, life-changing journey with Jesus. On that journey... What would encourage you to take a next step? Now, it is true that there are people who can sense the Spirit of God moving in their hearts and souls and sense a hungering, a thirsting for the things of God and are ready to take that next step. But for others, it comes in a time of difficulty. It's so easy just to stay on idle, to remain in neutral. Everything's good. My life is good. I have a job. We have a nice home. Everything is going well. The kids, yeah, they make some bad decisions, but they also make some good decisions. Everything is just fine. And then suddenly the bottom drops out. The foundation is cracked. You get a pink slip at work. A spouse says goodbye. A doctor says cancer. The bottom falls out of your finances. And suddenly, at a moment in time when you deeply need a firm, solid foundation which will sustain you, you discover, my spiritual foundation is pretty thin. I need a next step with Jesus. So that's what this four-part series of Call the Next Step is all about. What would it take to encourage you to take the next step? When will you take the next step? Now, maybe hearing those questions, you would ask me, well, exactly how do I take a next step in my journey with Jesus? And that's what we hope to answer. Four ways. Four ways to take the next step. Step up, step down, step in, step out. And so today we begin with step up. We begin in Romans, the letter to the Romans, Paul's Maybe his most well-known letter, Romans chapter 12, the scripture reading we had for this morning. But before we read the scripture, the stage, the context. 
you'll remember that Romans is arguably Paul's, not only his best known letter, but his most clear statement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is in the first part of Romans, the first 11 chapters, that we find statements like this. But having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that most majestic of statements about the ever-pursuing, ever-persistent love of God. Do you remember those words ending the 8th chapter of Romans where Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Elevating rhetoric, profound thinking, God makes us right with himself through no desert of our own. He does it because of his grace. And then we come to chapter 12. Chapter 12 is the crease in the letter. He is now going to turn from things primarily theological to things primarily practical. In other words, he's going to say, this is how he saves you. Now this is how you live out your salvation. In other words, he's going to take the next step. That's the setting. That's the context. So read it with me. Romans 12, beginning with verse 1, says, Therefore, now just remember, the reason he's saying therefore is, in light of all that I've just said in the first 11 chapters, this now is the implication. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, that's the first 11 chapters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I choose to call this step up because it has to do with our vertical relationship with God. This, he says, is true worship. Now understand that for us as human beings, we don't have a choice whether or not we're going to worship. Our choice is what we'll worship. That's really the choice that we have. In fact, I want to read some words that are penned by the preacher and writer, well-known, named Tim Keller, who writes about these very things. Listen to what Keller writes about that. Everybody has to live for something. But Jesus argues that if that thing is not him, it will fail you. It will enslave you. Nobody put this better than the American writer and intellectual David Foster Wallace. Wallace was at the top of his profession. He was an award-winning, best-selling novelist who committed suicide in 2008. But before his death, he gave a famous commencement address in which he said this to the graduating class. Now, these are Wallace's words. Because here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. 
That's Wallace's claim. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen and smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. And so what Wallace is saying is we don't have a choice whether or not we're going to worship. It's just a choice of what it is that we worship. If Wallace is right, and it seems to me that he is, then we ought to pay attention to Paul. If you're interested at any level in your heart of taking the next step in your discipleship journey with Jesus, then listen to Paul's words. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is true worship. This was the theme and reality of much of the Old Testament Scripture. In fact, if you sit down and read through the Old Testament, before very long, you will begin to feel the frustration rise because it seems like the people of God over and over and over again get caught in worshiping other things, other gods, other realities, and God is constantly having to pull them back, to call them back to himself. Come to the New Testament, and the same choices remain before the people of God. What and who will you worship? Maybe the most important first step in a discipleship journey. So I want to suggest three things. If you're interested in taking the next step in your journey with Jesus, particularly this step up, your horizontal relationship of worship with him. Then there are three things we ought to note about worship insofar as Paul's words are concerned. Here's the first one. Who it's for. Who it's for. That seems like such an obvious reality. Worship is for God. Right? It seems so simple and so basic. And yet it is so easy to miss. We live in a world where we are the ones about whom we are concerned. And that is fed and nurtured by different realities in the culture. Realities that call us to spoil ourselves, to pamper ourselves, to focus on ourselves, take time out for number one. When you go to businesses, although this to me seems to be dropping some, it has always been true that the customer is king. So when you walk in that door and you have a complaint, you want somebody to come and to deal with your issue. It's about me. And that follows over and bleeds into our worship life. When we come to worship, many of us come with a desire for us to be satisfied and satiated. 
Let me read you the words written by Mark Horst, first in the Christian century, later quoted by Christianity Today, who picks up on this theme and talks about how that affects us. He writes, I am dismayed by the popular phrase, worship experience, to describe the church's corporate worship. Worship has the capacity to transform us because it focuses our hearts and minds on God. However, the phrase worship experience suggests that worship is important because it induces feelings. In this context, worship is focused more on the worshiper than on the one worshiped. We need to ask ourselves what a true worship experience is so that if we had one, we would recognize it. I understand a worshiper's desire to have his or her cup filled, a legitimate desire. But the irony, indeed the paradox of worship is our cups are most deeply filled when our, when our thoughts are most clearly heavenward. When we understand that the purpose of what it is that we do here, the reason that we've come here is to worship God. That's the first thing, who it's for. The second thing I would notice about worship here is what it does. What it does. Because of who it's for, true worship focuses the mind on God the experience on God. And that's counter to what's natural in our hearts. You know what it's like. You come, you sit down, you greet, meet friends, you talk, you converse, the service begins. It is easy to main, remain very distracted by every kind of thing imaginable, by what's happening around you, in front of you, behind you, by what happened last week, by what you fear this next week, by the ever-present reality of the cell phone. Very easy to become deeply distracted about what happens. I love the feel when we come into worship here and people are connecting with each other, greeting one another, talking with one another. I love the feel when the service ends. A sign of a healthy congregation is a congregation where people linger, where they connect with each other, where they engage each other's lives and experiences. That's a sign of health. But what about that period of time in between those two? That period when the worship service begins. And when what it does to us is supposed to be focus us on the one for whom we do it. Some architecture makes that much more easy. If you've traveled in some of the countries where it, wherein is clearly visible, the architecture of the great cathedrals of the Christian past. You know what I'm talking about. You step off the busy avenue, you step into what is suddenly a quiet and cool interior with a vaulted ceiling, artwork on the ceiling, artwork wherever you look. It's large, cavernous at times. It's quiet. The acoustic echo is obvious. So you kind of naturally just begin to speak more quietly. People sense the grandeur, the awesomeness of the place. 
And if you are attentive, you will notice that those, not the tourists, those who come to worship, enter in and immediately they understand intuitively the focus here is on God. We could learn something from that. Let me talk to you as family because I include myself in this. We could learn something from that. We've noticed over the last several years, we've had many conversations about this, pastoral staff, deacons, other church leaders. We've noticed what, what, what is easy to have happen in the service of worship. Conversations at regular volume while the worship of God is unfolding. People not just having a phone ring, answering the phone, talking in church. Others saying, what, what, what? We had someone a year, two, three years ago watching a movie on an iPad with no earbuds in a worship service intended to focus on God. What does worship do? Worship calls us to focus on the one whom we worship, on the one for whom we do what we do, to engage. Now, if you notice Paul's language in Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's religious language in the original. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. This is true worship. When he uses those terms, he borrows terms from Israel's past, from when they worshiped in the sanctuary and later in the temple. It was the activity of what they were doing. That's the picture that Paul has in mind. He's calling us to engage in that fashion. That's true worship. I've been giving this some thought personally because for me it's very easy to get caught up in everything else that happens on a Sabbath morning and to kind of tack worship onto the end of it. I've been thinking, searching, praying. If you want to take that next step in your journey with Jesus, what will that have to say about your life of worship? Paul calls us. That's the step up. That's where he begins. As soon as he's finished talking about the mercy and the grace of God, then he says, offer your bodies living sacrifice. This is true worship. Who it's for is for God. What it does, it focuses in on God. And the third reality, where it happens. Where does true worship happen? You'll notice till this point I've been talking about our worship here, corporate worship here. And that's one of the most legitimate ways to which our minds immediately turn when we start talking about worship. We start talking about what happens when we gather as a community of believers, as a communion of saints, because that's what Paul calls us, corporate worship. But notice what Paul says. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies 
a living sacrifice. By the terminology he uses, Paul is calling us to involve all of life, not just the moment when the corporate body gathers for worship, not just that moment, but all of life. I am drawn to the way that William Barclay, the old Scottish scholar, says it. He's writing about this particular passage. I find compelling how he puts it. He says, here we have a most significant thing. True worship is the offering to God of one's body and all that one does every day with it. Real worship is not the offering to God of a liturgy, however noble, and a ritual, however magnificent. Real worship is the offering of everyday life to him. Not something carried out in a church, but something which sees the whole world as the temple of the living God. We might say, I'm going to church to worship God, but we should also say, I'm going to the factory the shop, the office, the school, the garage, the mine, the shipyard, the field, the cow shed, the garden, to worship God. When Christ becomes the center of life, then we can present real worship, which is the offering of every moment and every action to God. So what if this coming week you say, I'm going to the OR, and I'm going to worship God in the act of removing deadly cancer from the body of one of his children. That's worship. This week, I'm going to worship God as I stand before a classroom of fifth graders filled with life and energy, sometimes unruly, but I'm going to worship God as I engage with them and help them think not only about math and literature and history, but also think about how God intersects with their world. I'm going to worship God, you say, this week by caring for these little ones who are growing up. I'm going to worship God in my research laboratory. I'm going to worship God in the courtroom. I'm going to worship God in the boardroom because Paul says all of life is worship. Everything we do, we bring as a sacrifice to the God of heaven. This is my very best, and I do it for you. That's why elsewhere he can say that whatever we do, eat, drink, whatever we do, we do it all as unto the Lord and for his glory. That's worship. The great reformer Martin Luther was approached one day by a man who had a question. He didn't use this terminology, but he essentially had a question about how do I take the next step in my journey with Jesus? How do I do that? What do I need to do? And so Luther asked the man, he says, what, what, what do you do? What is your profession? The man said, well, well I'm a cobbler. I, I make shoes and I repair shoes. You're a cobbler, yes. And you want to know how to follow God more deeply. Yes, the man said. And Luther said to him, this is how you do it. You make the best shoes possible and you sell them for a fair price. That's worship. He did not say, 
make Christian shoes. He said, make the best shoes possible. He did not say you should leave behind your profession, become a monk, and go to the monastery. No, he said, in the very place where you live, in the very duties that you are doing, in the very actions that you take on a day-to-day basis, do the very best you have with what God has given you and in that to which he has called you and do it in a fair and just way and you will be worshiping God. That's worship. Our bodies, everything that we do in our bodies is bound up in the act of recognizing the one who created us, the one who calls us, and the one who empowers us. So what about it? Are you at a place in your walk with Jesus where you feel a need to take the next step? Maybe you've been idling for a while. Maybe you've been dozing a bit. Maybe it's been in neutral and not much progress has been taking place. But you've been thinking, you've been feeling, I ought to grow more. Or maybe you've had a catastrophe hit in your life and it has revealed that the foundation you thought you had is not as firm, not as solid as you had envisioned it to be. And so you come to worship today saying, I need something more. As a church, we want to grow as disciples. And disciples grow by ever being aware of and ever being willing to take the next step. So today we start with a step up. Our spiritual life with God, our worship of God. And we realize we do it for Him. It focuses us on God. And we can do it not just here, but everywhere we go. I hope you're willing to take the next step. Because it is in taking the next step and the next one and the one after that that you one day realize, I don't know what has happened in my life or where all it has happened. But Jesus has been changing my heart. I have been growing in him. And it is in that realization that you understand what Paul says in that second verse. You are no longer quite so conformed to the spirit of the age. Rather, you are transformed in your mind and able to understand and follow more clearly his pleasing, his good, and his perfect will. I want to invite you to take that next step. I'm going to give you an opportunity in your own heart, your own mind, to open to Jesus. To say, Jesus, I don't know where all the steps, all the path will lead. I don't know that, but I do know this. I want to take one step right now here today. And that step today is to engage a step up in worship here to engage more deeply. And in my life, to engage more richly. If that's your desire, then I invite you just to bow your heads and to take a moment in time to connect with Him.
Gracious God, we do want to respond to the urging of your spirit and to the words of Paul to surrender, to give, to sacrifice our very selves in every aspect of our lives. Lord, take our hand, encourage us, empower us, guide us as we grow together as disciples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Part of our journey of growing as disciples is we are moving very decidedly in the direction of connecting communities together. If you have a desire to connect with a Bible study community, we would love to engage with you and point you in that direction and make sure that such is possible for you. One of those communities today is our young adult community. If you are part of the young adult community, then as soon as we end the service today, to your left, my right, your left, out in the courtyard and just off the courtyard in room 105, we'd like to feed you lunch. Young adult community. So if you are a young adult, we'd love to welcome you there. Love to get to know you. Love to give you the opportunity to connect with each other. And for all of us, may God empower us as we continue to grow as disciples. <laughs>